you know, someone said, Hey, Phil, you have a phone call. And so I grabbed it. I'm like, hello, how can I help you? And it's Ariana Huffington. <laughs> so she started complimenting me and saying she knew that I'd done this video. And I was like, that's not me. I mean, I know why you could think it's me because I've been involved in other videos. She said, oh, no, I have a troop of experts here. And, you know, we figured out that you did it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Phil DeVelise, is principal in the progressive media firm Beacon Media. Some people came to know Phil originally for an independent online ad he made in the 2008 presidential campaign, a story he tells here. But Phil has a long history working at some of the leading firms in democratic media before he founded his own. Over the past five years, Phil has been a lead consultant for independent expenditure campaigns for the DCCC, the DSCC, MoveOn.org, House Majority PAC, Patriot Majority and SEIU. Phil and I had a very good conversation about his path to founding his own firm, including what he learned elsewhere and what they're up to now at Beacon Media. He's a very good guest. You'll want to listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Phil DeVelise of Beacon Media. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Phil, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Phil DeVelise. I'm the uh, co-founder and creative director of uh, Beacon Media. I'm a Los Angeles native, grew up in Los Angeles, uh, went to UCLA, um, was always really interested in politics, but didn't work in it for a while. I really didn't start working in politics till I was uh, 30. After college, I uh, was working in various jobs in TV and advertising, became an editor. And then, you know, George Bush became president. And then I really wanted to get involved in 2004 to make sure he didn't stay president. And that's when I started professionally working in politics. I went out to Ohio, worked on the Kerry campaign there for about six months in field. Let's stop on that for a sec because, boy, that was the pivotal state in 2004. The two campaigns weren't that, that far apart. How did it feel to work on that? It was exciting to work in Ohio in 2004. I mean, it did, really did seem like the center of, of the action there. I specifically wanted to go out there and work in Ohio. It just felt like there was just a lot of energy on the ground there. I, I worked on two different canvases out there. I did a fundraising canvas in the beginning, and then I moved on to the voter contact piece. And so I got to go all over, not just like Cleveland, I was based out of Shaker Heights, Ohio, right next to Cleveland, but I went all over uh, Cuyahoga County and traveled in other parts of the state. And, you know, people that you wouldn't expect were, you know, tired of Bush and, and were excited about John Kerry. Um, and then close to the election, it was really, you know, it was really exciting. People, all sorts of people came into town, judges, uh, other politicians, just to make phone calls. We had like the COO of Amazon come there to wire our war room. So uh, there was a lot of hope that we could do this. And you're right, uh, people forget this, but we became very close. If I think it was around 50,000 votes, if you know, we would have overcome that, Kerry would have lost the popular vote, but would have won the electoral vote there. And, and people really forget that, that he was a very strong candidate. And that was a bad year for Democrats overall. Uh, we didn't really win much else. Kerry really overperformed other Democrats across the country. What was next for you? Well, you know, I decided to go to D.C. to live there, and um, it was a very 
depressing time to be a Democrat. <laughs> After that, it felt like, you know, we could never get stuff done. I worked some temp jobs, some nonprofit stuff, which I actually really liked and thought was rewarding. A friend of mine from LA um, ha had a contract with this group called Walmart Watch. They needed a digital person there. I said, you know, I, I don't know any, I mean, I looked at blogs, but I didn't really know anything about you know, running a digital program because, well, you understand computers. I mean, you're an editor, you know how to <laughs> do more complicated things. Why don't you be the digital director there? And that was a really great experience. It had a lot of democratic operative refugees. It was run by Andrew Grossman, who had been the uh, ED of the DSCC and the political director there. Jim Jordan was an advisor. Tracy Seffel, who had been the research director at the DNC was the comms director there. So I, I met a lot of people. I'd say between the people that I met in Ohio in, in, in 04 and then at Walmart Watch, I, I still stay in touch with a lot of people. And there was a lot of energy and money put into that. Uh, I think Democrats thought, well, if we can't win electorally at the moment, let's focus on taking on Walmart, uh, focus on um, getting them to do better as far as with unions, uh, although they weren't specifically union organizing, but uh, things like on the environment, corporate responsibility, and it was a really big campaign. So you referenced a couple times being an editor. You're talking about like editor with like final cut of video and audio, or are you talking about words or both, or what is that background? So I edited all on all sorts of platforms. So I was an avid editor, Final Cut, uh, Premiere. I also was really good at After Effects and Photoshop. So what I did out there is I'd work on advertising and in LA, when I say out there, work on advertising and then also a lot of on-air promos for cable networks. And so it was really kind of a great experience because uh, I would do editing and I'd also do motion graphics. And that was really kind of a basis for what we do in politics right now, because we usually we don't farm things out to like graphics person and a person who does a rough cut and a person who does, you know, these other things uh, usually work with an editor who, who does it all. And that was my experience when I worked in that. Got it. So uh, how did you end up at the Sherrod Brown campaign? That's an interesting thing. So yeah, I was out at Walmart watch. Uh, for about a year, was was like the second person hired there. Jerome Armstrong uh, got in contact with me, the original blog father. Somehow he found me, or maybe I applied. I don't know. I was getting a little restless out there in D.C. And he said, hey, you know, I need a digital guy out there. Sherrod's got a lot of problems with bloggers. There's this, you know, insurgent campaign out there that a lot of the nascent blogging community, Paul Hackett, liked. He said, you know, you seem like you've got a good background. I'd love for you to do that. And I said, wow, that's fantastic. I'd love to go back to Ohio. Sherrod seemed like a great candidate. You know, things were starting to look a little bit more up. So I said, you know, I'm going to do it, you know. And then I told Andy Grossman, uh, uh, who's, who's my boss there at Walmart Watch, and I told Jim Jordan, who had also been the, the executive director of the DSCC. I said, hey, guys, this has been great doing this, but... I'm going to go hire to work for Sherry Brown. They go, oh, that's crazy. He's he's not going to win the primary. <laughs> the DSCC likes this other guy, Paul Hackett. And I said, well, you know, I've been out there before. I have a good feeling. And I said, just just hang out here for a little while, and then you know we'll get you hooked up, and you can work for Hillary's presidential campaign for 2008. I said, you know what? I'd like to go back out there. And they were very nice about. It. They understood. And uh, so yeah, I was out there, one of the first people on Sherrod's campaign. And uh, we had a pretty crazy primary and very interesting general election out there. Boy, he's really thought well of now in his both campaign and governing skills, I think. If you talk to a lot of, I don't know, people that I really respect about politics, they think he would be a great nominee for president, for example, that he's managed to hold a seat in a state that's gone more and more red by carrying a message that could be really successful de for Democrats. What was your impression of him personally? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a very impressive candidate on many levels. He's very smart. Um, he knows his politics really, really well. He has a good, long, consistent message. I mean, he'd been friends with Bernie Sanders for a long time. That was like his BFF. So there's no you know, there's a lot of commonality there. I mean, I think he would be a very good presidential candidate. Uh, you know, he kind of tried it out last time. And I think he, you know, 
got the excitement, people following around. I think he just didn't want to do it. I mean, I haven't really stayed in contact with him personally that much. From what I can tell, you know, he's like, yeah, I, I could do this, but I really don't want to. You know, he's got a good life. He's got enough of his hands full in Ohio and has a good perch on the banking committee. And he's kind of like a regular guy in a lot of ways. Like, you know, he likes to read talk to people. He's very, likes to order the same things in restaurants. I think he could do it and be a great candidate. He's just kind of a little bit more of a normal person than you'd think. And it's like a normal person really doesn't want to be president, right? You know, I think he's accomplished a lot in his life. I mean, he's done a lot of things, but yeah, if you're asking me like, what's a good example of a democratic candidate and someone who could win for president, I think he could. It'll be interesting to see you know, if he runs for re-election again, I don't know any information that he wouldn't, but I mean, as fantastic as he is, Ohio is very, very tough. So I think that, you know, he's probably about as best as you could get as a candidate to run nationally in those places. I mean, as we, I think we've seen of Joe Biden, you know, he had a lot of this sort of Rust Belt appeal, you know, probably shared better than that, uh, a little bit more current, but, you know, things are just so partisan. I, you know, it just doesn't really matter if, you know, how great you are. People just see a D next to your name. I think we need to look at a different template exactly. You know, I don't know if we're going to win Ohio back anytime soon. What was his relationship to the internet communications part of that campaign that you were? <laughs> I get, that's how I got to know him quite well. Um, so there was another candidate in the primary, Paul Hackett, who was, uh, I think he was a Marine colonel, and he'd run in a special election against Gene Schmidt, you probably even remember all this, uh, back at, uh, previously in a special election. He almost beat her. So imagine this is the scene. Democrats are very demoralized in 2004. Um, then Paul Hackett comes along. You know, no one can say he's a wimp, been in combat. Um, and he came very close to unseating this Republican uh, in a suburban district in Cincinnati. And so, like people always do, they want to fight the last war. They say, okay, he's a great candidate. And a lot of early bloggers had gotten behind his campaign, uh, and it was a real thing for them. And so when he decided he was going to run for Senate, they kind of all lined up behind him. They're a very boisterous community, at least back then, the Ohio bloggers. And uh, they really didn't like Sherrod. They saw him in the way, in their way. I mean, if you think about it, Sherrod... These days, you know, you said he's sort of a darling of people. Uh, you know, they just sort of thought of him as a politician, typical politician. You know, he'd run and he'd lose. They put up a real stiff resistance to him. So I was kind of brought in to sort of soften things up. And uh, that didn't work <laughs> very well. They just weren't really re interested in him. Um, but we did get to do a lot of interesting things. You know, I traveled around with Sherrod a lot. Um, uh, videotape stuff, we put that online. We did a lot of... Um, guest blogging with him and really wanted to make sure it was authentic. So I would, you know, call Sherrod up in the morning sometimes and have a conversation with him about something. I'd record it. And then I'd turn that into a blog post, you know, and I'd ask him about, you know, his policy on, you know, made in America or whatever. It was very early in the, uh, you know, internet day. So I did a lot of experiments. We did a lot of stuff when YouTube first came out. We did installed Google Analytics, I believe, when it first came out or pretty early in a political campaign. So I could figure things out. Like if we did an exclusive blog post on the Daily Coast versus the Huffington Post at the time, I could see that the conversion rate, you know, we'd get just as many clicks, let's say, from Daily Coast, but we get twice as many donations from Huffington Post, a little older audience. I said, you know, let's prioritize Huffington Post. <laughs> and, you know, people would sometimes call me out, weren't shy about commenting, but some of these guys, even after Hackett dropped out, uh, you know, they say, oh, this Phil DeVelise guy is a moron. You know, he's posting on Huffington Post. Why isn't he in the, you know, having Sherrod's blogs go first on Daily Coast? And I would just be like, well, you guys don't know what I know. And I know that he's making a lot more money off of doing it at Huffington Post first and making it an exclusive. And not that we would neglect Daily Coast. That was very important as well. At the end of the day, I was, you know, a big part of my job was, was raising money. But yeah, Sherrod was very interested in what was happening. You know, blogs were, were a big thing. His wife would read everything. Connie Schultz, uh, who's very impressive in her own, own right, a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, so, you know, if a bad story got up, you know, they would talk to me directly about it and wanted to know what we could do or uh, how we could respond, uh, you know, especially in the primary. It was a really important part of the campaign. 
I feel like when you have that kind of proximity to someone who goes on to be senator for a long time, you learn a lot about politics. What did you learn? One of the things I just remember and I tell people all the time is, you know, I'd ask Sherrod, I'd say, you know, who is your, you know, mentor? What, you know, you know, who, who did you look up to in politics and sh shape your, uh, you know, your philosophy? And uh, I hope <laughs> I don't get in trouble for saying this, but, you know, he said, he said, Howard Metzenbaum, you know, a great senator of Ohio, very progressive. I said, oh, were you very close to him? He's like, no, not really. He wasn't necessarily the nicest guy. <laughs> but the fact that Sherrod, you know, could not personalize this. Um, and I didn't really know any details. He didn't tell me any stories, but it wasn't like this guy was his BFF. Like I could tell he was, uh, had a lot of ideological similarities with Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders was a friend of his, but it sounded like, you know, that, you know, Metzenbaum, he really liked his message, but, you know, just didn't necessarily care, care for him personally all that much from what I knew. Uh, so, you know, that taught me kind of, you know, to be very pragmatic. As much of this is a, is a relationship business, um, you need to focus on what you believe in. And, you know, Sherrod really believes in, in these things. He was very committed to them. He was also just very hardworking. He really knew stuff locally. I went with him a couple of times to some black churches. And, you know, we would sit up in the front. I hadn't been to many black churches you know, being the only white person in there and it's, you know, all the singing, everything, it was kind of unusual to me. So it was, I felt a little comfortable in the beginning, you know, being up there in the front. I just worried like I was going to stick out like a sore thumb, you know. And, um, you know, Sherrod turned to me and just said, you know, I was there with Sherrod and Connie. He turned to me and he's like, we're staying for the whole thing, you know. We're not going to leave. And he wasn't like telling me like I was asking he was going to go, but I was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, politicians, they come in here, they say something, people say nice things, they leave. Like, we want to show these parishioners here that we respect them and then we're going to stay for the whole service, you know? And I was like, cool, you know, makes sense to me. You know, we did and it was really powerful. I learned that it's not just about virtue signaling, but actually, you know, really doing it. You know, he'd really talk to people. In Appalachia, we went to a lot of places and he, you know, you know, we'd sit down and, you know, have drinks or dinner with, you know, the union guy out there. And he, he really knew his stuff. So I haven't encountered too many people like him <laughs> since then, but I did learn a lot of sort of what an ideal candidate should be. I mean, I've talked to politicians who have built a comfort with people who are unlike themselves by just immersing themselves in different communities. I mean, it seems like a such a, a necessary skill or such a, a virtue when you get that right to understand a you know a diverse and complex state like Ohio you got to go everywhere yeah and I think for someone like Sherrod his dad was a doctor uh he went to Yale um you know and everybody thinks of him as this blue collar guy and he's got a very gruff voice but you you know he's been in politics a long time and I don't think he's putting on an act I just think he's like you said he spent a lot of time talking and listening to people, immersing himself, caring. And you're right, it is a real privilege. And, and, and that's how I did learn. I mean, I owe a lot to Ohio because I, you know, I would do a lot of door-to-door -door canvassing myself and talk to people. And coming from California, you're really out of touch with what's going on, you know, in the Midwest in a place like Ohio. But you can learn a lot if you spend all day talking to people and seeing where they live and seeing where they work. As I understand it, you went next to Blue State Digital, which was a it was a pretty new firm in those days. It had come out of the Dean campaign in 2004, and a lot of people wanted that magic and picked up with Obama early and Kennedy and, and just had a lot of like early success in sort of digital consulting and, and software. How, how was that? You know, Bruce Day Digital is a big part of a big step in, you know, my career, but I was actually only there for, I think, three months before I got fired, but which we could get into too. I, um, I remember but, I remember the story a bit. So yes, go ahead. Tell, um, so you picked up something in three months. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, Blue State Digital was a much smaller firm. Most of the partners there were in the office, got to know Joe Rosebars, Clay was there. Um, uh, I worked really closely. Like my buddy that I met there was a Macon Phillips who went on to do a lot of great things, um, in the white house. Um, and is still a good friend of mine today and Lauren Miller, 
There was a great crew there. And even after I got fired, I still stayed in touch with all of them. I got hired there because again, the same guy who brought me into Walmart Watch, Thomas Gensimer, who I met originally in LA through the, the Dean campaign as a volunteer, he became uh, a senior figure at Blue State Digital. So he brought me in. So it was great working with him there again too, but also got to meet all the other people there. Probably what led to my firing was pretty soon after I got there, Joe got swept up in the Dean campaign. Obama. And other people, not the Dean campaign, sorry. Obama campaign. <laughs> Some similarities there. Pretty soon after I started working on uh, working at Blue State Digital, uh, Joe, Rose Spars, and some of the other people there got swept up into the Obama campaign. And I did a little bit of that very, very, very briefly. I was never really involved in the campaign. I shot one video with Obama. So Macon and I were stuck doing um, the less exciting stuff, you know, working for CWA, doing other projects. And so as Obama started taking off as a candidate, then I started kind of moonlighting on my own. And that sort of led to my trouble, unspeknownst to other people at Blue State. It's because you made an independent ad, right? That you reached some notoriety at that moment. Yes. So I made an ad on, on, you know, in my spare time in my, um, uh, in my dining room, in my one bedroom apartment, uh, and uh, with my cat, he helped me out. This is a thing that kind of goes back to the Cher Brown's campaign is, you know, we were one of the first campaigns to use YouTube. I made a bunch of YouTube videos for him and shot stuff. And so I was familiar with the, the technology. I also knew how to get things out there without your fingerprints on them. I thought, well, I, I had this idea to do a mashup of the famous Ridley Scott Apple ad, replacing Big Brother with Hillary Clinton, yeah, something I could easily do. Um, Funny thing is I, um, I I used Apple Motion to make it, which I'd never used before, but I had like the final cut suite that it came with and I didn't have the money to buy After Effects. So it was the first time I used it. So I made, made this video and I got it up on YouTube and I you know, created a dummy account and then I found a way to seed it to a few blogs anonymously and thought, well... That'll be fun. You know, I'll get some attention. Never thought that anyone would know it was me or would, you know, get so big as it did. Um, and so I put it out there. But yeah, I did become, was one of, for the your younger listeners who don't know, it was probably one of the first big viral political videos. And it kept on kind of gaining steam, gaining steam, gaining steam. And then eventually I walked to work one day and it was on the cover of the Washington Post. And I sort of just knew that my identity was going to come out somehow. And sure enough, that day, I got a call from Ariana Huffington. And, you know, I'm a very, at that point, a very low-level person. I did not, you know, rub elbows or talk to Ariana Huffington. I mean, yes, I'd spent a lot of time with Sherrod Brown and his wife, but I'd worked on the campaign. But I certainly was not part of the, even the D.C., you know, illustrious blog set, right? I was very a low-level person. So... You know, someone said, hey, Phil, you have a phone call. And so I grabbed it. I'm like, hello, how can I help you? And it's Ariana Huffington. <laughs> so she started complimenting me and saying she knew that I'd done this video. And I was like, that's not me. I mean, I know why you could think it's me because I've been involved in other videos. She said, oh, no, I have a troop of experts here. And, you know, we figured out that you did it. And I was like, well, I really don't know how you could have done that because Unless you somehow broke into Google, like there's no way that you would have known that. I was very, that, you know, I didn't tell her that, but I was just saying like, I don't know why you would think it's me. And then I realized like, look, she's just going to like say, it. she's like, look, I, I know it's you. I'm going to publish an article that it's you. You can either work with me and, you know, explain why you did this video and, you know, it's such a wonderful thing. I don't know why you wouldn't want to tell people. <laughs> So you can work with me and I'll give you a, a great blog post on this and stuff, or we'll just put your name out there anyway. And so I was like, well, I know it seemed like she was pretty much going to do that, right? Whether or not she had actual forensic proof or not. So I said, okay, listen, Ariana, I will write your blog post, but I need to do some things first. Like I need to quit my job. Okay. Because at this time you have to remember a lot of people forget like, well, why was this such a problem? Well, Blue State, who's my employer, did the digital for 
Barack Obama's campaign. My boss, Joe Rosebars, was a digital director for Obama's campaign. The DNC was also a client of Blue State Digital. So, like, this is all very bad for Blue State. So, and and, by, and for people who haven't seen the ad, it's a female runner with a giant sledgehammer that she throws through the screen. It was from the Apple ad of 1984, Apple ad, throws through the screen, which you have Hillary just speaking on the screen and then the screen explodes. So it was dramatic and anti-Hillary. Yes, it was dramatic and anti-Hillary, but what was interesting is that there was a lot of popular acclaim, like people were just interested, like how could this video get a million views? You know, I think at the time it got up to like 4 million views, which is sort of unheard of. There'd been the Makaka video that had come out, but that was just a tracking video essentially that had gotten a lot of views. So this was like, you know, and there's all this discussion about, well, maybe we don't need television. You need to spend all this money, you know, campaigns can just do this ad. And so even though some people viewed it as like, this is this horrible thing. You know, there's this woman throwing a sledgehammer in Hillary Clinton's face. Like most of the discussion about it was, this is so empowering. You know, someone could in a basement can make a video and it can get millions of views. And maybe this is the future and we don't need to spend all this money and anybody can communicate. I knew that Hillary's campaign was not happy about this and they would try to portray this in a different way. And also because even though I didn't really work for the Obama campaign, I had connections with them that, hey, you know, surprise everyone. This isn't, you know, some kid in Kansas in a basement. You know, it's this, you know, deep guy in DC who has, you know, connections to the campaign. Ariana was saying, well, I'll hold off on publishing this story, but, you know, you've got to get me your blog post and, you know, don't dilly dally. Ariana was very worried about me burning her and going somewhere else. Like, well, I don't want to give it to the Huffington Post. I'm going to go to time or whatever, you know, you know, and, and so she was worried that, you know, she just really didn't understand why she wanted, didn't want to get scooped. She didn't want to get scooped, but like she, she just didn't understand why I wouldn't want to just shout from the rooftops that I did this. Right. And that just was not my mentality. Like I wanted to be anonymous. Do you think she was just working you? Like, uh, I'm just going to, she just wanted your story and she, or do you think, I don't know. I think she did. I think she definitely did want the story. She definitely did want the scoop. I mean, this is still early days for the Huffington Post. So she absolutely wanted to break the story. Although, you know, Ariana, I have to say, is quite a nice woman. And I actually spent a bunch of time with her. I was going to work for the Huffington Post after this, actually. Um, And I think she's a fabulous person. And so I do think she wanted the scoop. But I genuinely think she had a difficult time understanding why I wouldn't want to claim this. Like, she's like, this is fabulous. Like, you know, everyone is hailing you as a hero. Like, why wouldn't you want to do this? And forget about your little job at Blue State Digital. Like, she introduced me to a lot of powerful people. Like, I had lunch with Ken Lair, who, um, who you know, was her uh, co-founder of the Huffington Post and founded BuzzFeed, among other ventures. Very powerful people. Like, I think she's a really good person, but she's never been a political operative, right? Like, she just doesn't understand why this would be a problem. So there's that. Anyway, at that point, you know, I had to go in and tell my bosses, um, hey, you know that video out there that's gotten all this attention? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, that was me. And they're like... They're like, and I'm like, but don't worry, you don't have to fire me. I'm going to quit. I know how this looks bad. And they're like, oh, okay. They're like, yeah, we could see how it was you. And then Clay uh, Johnson was like, right on, man. You know, like we should give you a raise. And everyone else was like, no, 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 this is bad. I'm like, yeah, Clay, this is bad. Like, I got to go. Like, I'll be fine. Like, I just was talking to Ariana Huffington. Like, I'm sure everything will be fine, but like, I got to go, you know? But I have to go leave now because I got to write this blog post because I'm pretty sure Ariana Huffington's going to out me if I don't do this like right away. Um, and so they're like, oh, okay, okay, okay. So then um, uh, uh, I was like, Jesus, I have to write this blog post. So I called my good friend, uh, Ben Wickler, who was my roommate actually at one point on the Chair Brown campaign and uh, went on to move on of Oz and is now the uh, chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. And I said, hey, I told him what happened. And he's like, oh, this is you. Oh, my God. And I said, hey, Ben, I, need, I, I, can, I can I do this over at your place, uh, write this thing, and can you help me out? And so Ben, uh, to, to give him full credit, uh, this, this blog post went on to be kind of a manifesto. Uh, it was is highly read and quoted from in the media. And so uh, Ben helped me a lot on that blog post. So anyway, while we were working on this blog post, 
CNN reported that they had figured out who was this mystery blogger. It turns out they found out there was a bunch of copycat people. They found out who one of the copycats were. And then I got a call from Ariana saying, you screwed me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I, I don't know. I did not talk to CNN. And then, you know, the CNN kind of teases things. We found out who made the video. And then by the time the commercial break came back, it turns out that they had figured out a copycat person, not me. So they had already outed me. <laughs> anyway, the whole world, it was a very intense period. It's probably a whole podcast just about this. But suffice to say, it was a very intense period, but very positive for me. It was a lot of excitement. It was taken very positively from people. I had to do a lot of stuff behind the scenes to make sure that this did not spin in the wrong direction and seen as a dirty trick. But most of that was sort of covered up. And um, it was a very positive thing. I shunned most interviews. I didn't think that was really good at the time. But, you know, the main mission that I wanted to have, I, I, I did feel that it, it helped the Obama campaign and I didn't tarnish the campaign at all. Uh, in the end. And that sort of led to me being a, a media consultant after this. I mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes you kind of make a name for yourself in this uh, unusual ecosystem of the media online. And you always have that. You got it to talk about with me now. It's like something people know you for. And it doesn't hurt when you're, say, applying for jobs that people have this reference point. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, I, I'd say the one counterpoint is, you know, the Hillary Clinton campaign was not happy about this. And it wasn't clear that Obama was going to win the nomination, right, either. So I did talk to Ariana a lot and her people over there. I did accept the job to be uh, their video editor there, which would have been awesome and go to New York. Um, but I talked to a lot of other people. And one of the people I talked to was Mark Putnam. And I thought it was just kind of an informational interview. He was sort of curious about what happened and that he's very interested in digital and so just about as I'm about to leave and go up to New York, Mark called me up and he said, hey, you know, um, I really enjoyed meeting you and I'd like to offer you a job. And I said, well, you know, Mark, I, I just accepted this thing with the Huffington Post. I said, I, I'm just sort of surprised that you want to hire me because, you know, he was an establishment media person and, and you know, uh, and, and he said, no, you know, yeah, no, I, I would. And I said, well, you know, Mark, I, you know, I got this great gig up there at the Huffington Post I kind of don't want to be like the digital guy at your firm, you know? And he said, no, no, no. I want you to work on TV ads. You know, you have this background as an editor and I want you to do digital. I, I feel it's really important. We need to grow there, but I also want your help. I think you're a real creative person. And I said, really? And he said, yes, yes. You know, and I said, well, you guys are doing the Bill Richardson campaign right now. Like, is this a problem? I support Obama. He's like, no, I don't think so. And so I said, wow, like I could, you know, go to a, at the time, the Murphy Putnam was a top democratic firm. It was really the, the firm to beat, uh, just a very big firm. And so the fact of being going back right into the center of politics, working directly with candidates, really excited me. So I regretted to inform Ariana that I couldn't take the job. And she understood um, and stayed in contact with me after that. And then I started working as a media consultant. So that was uh, spring of 2007. And, and since then, I've been a media consultant. I've, I was at uh, Murphy Putnam. Well, that was around for four years. And then I went with Mark to start Putnam Partners and I was there for four years. And then after that started Beacon Media. I chatted with Mark several weekends ago for about an hour trying to get him on my podcast. He was reluctant because he'd done a number of other ones recently. And I've let it slide for a bit, but I'll go back after him at some point. He's Tell him I was on and he's very competitive. Say Phil was on and he said, Phil was on and he's, he did a better job than you would have done probably. You know? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because as you've been talking to me, so many of the people that you've mentioned, you know, like Thomas Gensimer has been on and, you know, Ben Wickler has been on. And even though I don't know a lot of these people, I feel a little bit like I do because I've spent an hour with them over the last few years and I at least know them better than they know me, which is <laughs> this weird relationship that you have in, in a podcast. But tell me a little about working for Mark. What I've observed and what I've heard from others is that he's really well thought of in terms of the creativity of the ads and the differentness of them as not being you know, cookie cutter, run of the mill ads that you often see in, in political campaigns. I'm sure that doesn't happen every time, but what was the process like there to try to do well? Well, you know, you know, before I get into Mark, I'll just, I want to emphasize that going over there, which I didn't really expect, but I also, 
you know, the firm was Murphy Putnam. Steve Murphy also had a large influence on me too. I didn't really think about it at the time when I joined, but, but between the two of them, people are really, to know both of them go, just always want to hear stories about how those two uh, work together. I learned a lot from both of them. Um, so sort of the yin and the yang. It sounds um, like I better interview Steve Murphy first in order to get Mark on. If you do that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and also interview Mike Riley. I don't know if you've interviewed him, but he's a great. Going back in history, Mike Riley, who's the creative director at MVAR, he worked for me as a canvasser in 04. He's from Ohio, right when he graduated college. And then he worked on Sherrod Brown's campaign. I got him in on there and he was the college organizer, which is like an awesome job. Just goes to party with college kids all over Ohio. And then I got him an internship at Murphy Putnam. And now he's a media consultant and he's more successful and better than I am. So you should get him on too. Then you'll definitely get Mark. But getting to, getting back to Mark, yeah, Mark is extremely creative, um, was always pushing for doing something you know bigger and better. I learned a lot about his creative process. You know, what's interesting is that since I had been an editor before and had done a lot of creative things, I had some of my own process. Like I, I learned really kind of the craft of political ads from him, but just sort of creativity in general and how I handle things. I'd already had a lot of experience and I've, of course learned and changed. Uh, but I have, a lot of people have learned from Mark, but they kind of come at it from politics. They don't really have any other creative experience um, or they don't have, or they might have creative experience, but they don't have political experience. So I had both. So Mark did impact me a lot, but I wasn't wholly shaped by him. I think it was interesting when I started working for Mark, he definitely did really creative ads, but every ad wasn't, you know, creative or out of the box. I not only worked with them on a lot of stuff, but I also would go through and look at their, what we call their comp reels. So you would see like, every ad they did for a cycle, you know, so I saw some things being redone, you know, and try it again. Um, I think when Mark left Putnam, Murphy Putnam and went and founded Putnam Partners, something in him was kind of unleashed, you know, and he had even more of a creative renaissance. And so I, I got to see things that were repeated less. But yeah, certainly he's had a big impact on me. He, uh, you know, is always trying to do better and really fights for his, his creative process. I mean, that's probably the thing I've learned from him the most is you're not going to tell somebody some idea and they're going to say, great, wonderful. You know, you really have to fight for it and you have to get the resources for it to pull it off. I'd say if you have a great idea, you know, you don't want to do it poorly. And, you know, he, he wasn't shy about saying, Hey, you guys like this idea. Great. But, you know, instead of a, $20,000 shoot, it's going to be a $50,000 shoot. And people are like, what? what are you talking about? And you have to explain, well, we got to get this, we got to get this, we got to get the right things. So, and then also, you know, he would uh, just burn the midnight oil working on ads, sometimes too long. <laughs> I have a different approach now on things, but he definitely, it, it is not over till the ad is shipped. And even after it's shipped, he sometimes wants to reship it and tweak it. You know, he, he wakes up in the middle of the night worrying about something and how to fix it. So that was, that was great because, you know, a lot of people in politics, there are a lot of hacks out there in, in making political ads and they go, oh, it's just a political ad. Oh, you know, it's a lot of money that you're spending on these things. And people also view them as a commodity, you know, uh, and they don't have the same production values and creative values. I'd say it's better now, but back when I started, I mean, there's some really bad stuff out there, you know? And, you know, I felt like Mark's work I could go back to my friends in LA and show the ads that we were working on and, and you know, be proud of them and feel that they really looked good. Did, so was it like a situation where you end up having sort of accounts, campaigns that their primary relationship is with you and you kind of have your own clients within the firm or how, what, what does your position end up as role wise? Um, hmm. That's yeah, a good question. So, it would depend on every situation. A lot of times I was brought in as a second. Well, Mark wants to really do everything on a campaign. He leaves very little to be done, you know, um, on that. Um, and so what I learned was if I'm working on a campaign with him, it's best to just, you know, figure out what he wants and try to make that happen. And his vision would be, you know, my vision. 
And I'd have to work very hard to like in, in service of him, I would go advance stuff for him a lot. Uh, I would be like, okay, what do you want? What do you want? And then, you know, I would, <laughs> I would not get him stuff till the, the end because he would constantly want to tweak with it. It was only for his own benefit. I did that because <laughs> he'd always want to tweak with things or, or sometimes I would edit ads for him, not me physically. Although sometimes I did physically edit them myself, but I would go produce them. Like he wasn't in the studio. So I would, I would produce them and I would show him something that was basically finished. And then we would do changes from there. When they would be my accounts primarily, it's because like Mark or Steve weren't interested in them. Steve would actually give me a lot more leeway. Steve thinks of himself as more of a strategist. He does have creative ideas, but he kind of would be like, yeah, you're the creative guy on here. I'll let you focus on that. So sometimes it w- for my good fortune, you know, they wouldn't be really as interested in a client or they'd be distracted. So then I would become the main point of contact. One thing that happened to me early is they were both out of town on vacation and there was a special election in Mississippi and we were doing the DSCCIE for it. And I kind of was sitting around twiddling my thumbs and they weren't around. And so I just really jumped into it. So I wound up being the lead person on it and did all the ads and did a shoot and everything. And they weren't around really to do it. And we didn't have collaboration tools and we won that race. It was a huge victory. You know, this is back in 2007, you know, instead of almost winning specials, we went to winning specials. Um, and so the fact that I did that was a big thing. So I used to really be the first chair on a lot of IE stuff and uh, independent expenditure things like for the DCCC. I mean, ostensibly Steve was first chair, but I would really, um, run a lot of the stuff and then also a lot of kind of second and third tier campaigns. So what I hear in this fairly nuanced discussion of your time there is the seeds for why you would want to start your own firm, like both an appreciation of what you learned there and who you got to work with, but also perhaps uh, inclination to do your own thing. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, I think that's true. I never really wanted to start my own firm, to be honest with you. You know, I made good money. I got to do a lot of things. But a lot of it came because of of, of conflicts. I don't mean conflicts because of fights, but conflicts in like they would, you know, if if there was a race happening, this was when I was with Mark uh, at Putnam Partners, there was the Massachusetts Attorney General race. And somebody came to me and said, hey, um, we, we got this great candidate. She's a DA. You're my friend. I think you're great. Like, I want, you know, you know, can you be the media consultant? Like, oh, that sounds great. Uh, you know, who's the candidate? Maura Healy, right? You know, who now is a big star, is the AG of Massachusetts, you know. Um, and then I, you know, went back and was saying, hey, Mark, I got this lead. He goes, oh, I don't think we should do that. Uh, and there's this other guy, Warren Tolman, you know, he's more of an insider. I think he's going to win the nomination. Well, he worked for Warren, Warren and he was a great guy. So I had to pass on Maura Healy. Uh, Warren wound up not winning, unfortunately, even though he was a great guy. But but th- that kind of thing kept on happening. I kept on having conflicts. I had a lot of friends who were like at Move On and other organizations. And, you know, they would want me to do the IE, you know, let's say for Obama. or And, and I couldn't do that because we were working for Obama. It's really that. Uh, it wasn't like I felt like, you know, I didn't have my space or anything. But just career development wise, I was doing a lot of independent expenditures and not really able to work with candidates as much. So that's why we started Beacon. So what's the founding story there? How'd you uh, decide to do it and go about putting together your own firm? At that time, everything worked on, you would just think one cycle at a time. It was considered very bad form to leave in the middle of a cycle. And so um, at the end of the 2014 cycle, I was like, you know, I've done this enough. You know, I worked with Mark, uh, for eight years, you know, and I wanted to do my own thing. And so I told them at the end of the cycle, like, Hey, I'm just going to do something. I was very cognizant that I didn't want to shop around or let it get out what I was doing. I was just like, I'm going to do one thing at a time. I'm going to leave Putnam partners and then I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do next. Um, and Mark tried to get me to stay and, you know, it was really, you know, made some generous offers, but I said, you know, made up my mind about this. And so, um, then after I left, I very quickly, wanted to capitalize on the relationships that I did have. And so um, I talked to a lot of people, you know, see who was out there and available, who knew people. And then um, Ed Peavy at Mission Control connected me. He said, I think there's somebody you, you, you'd like to work with, you know, that would be perfect, that would compliment you really well. And everybody sort of said, you know, went back to 
Murphy Putnam, where I first was a media consultant. You know, you need, you know, the creative guy, you need to find your Steve Murphy. Um, and so I got introduced to, to Ken Morley. Um, and he did have a great background as an operative. He'd, he'd work with some other people doing media. And from there, we kind of went at it and, you know, uh, you know, did all the branding and all that sort of stuff. And then try to kind of lock down some connections and clients that I had before and, and secure them with Beacon. In a lot of places in the entrepreneurial world and the business world, you have sort of like a non-compete or a no, no solicit of former clients. Is that standard in or enforceable in political media or how did you navigate that? Well, a couple of things. <laughs> it, from what I understand, non-competes are generally, you can, you can get them busted, um, but I didn't have one. So the funny thing, you know, Mark is such a perfectionist that he had a contract for me that he was working on forever for years and he never got me to sign it. So when I left, I actually didn't have a contract because he never finished drafting it, which is funny. I don't think Mark would have actually enforced that on me. Uh, what I did do is I, I went to Mark and I said, Hey, you know, I actually had a large body of work because there was things that I spearheaded. I had a big reel already. So I, um, I went to Mark and I said, Hey, here are the things I want to show on my reel. Um, and I wrote a whole list and, you know, Mark's, you know, Mark had a little checklist of what I could or couldn't show. And Mark was pretty generous. There were a few cases where things that I thought that I had done contributed to and should show for strategic reasons. He was like, no, but you know, he was, I was going to respect what he wanted. Like I got like 95% of what I wanted. So I thought that that was, was great. And he signed the piece of paper. It was, so it was good. And then I talked to Steve Murphy cause there's a bunch of stuff that I'd done at Murphy Putnam. And Steve Murphy said, hey, congratulations. He's like, as far as I'm concerned, anything you did at Murphy Putnam, you can show. <laughs> so, uh, you know, anything that we work together. So some people are caught in this bind and it is difficult to work out. But luckily I didn't have a contract and, you know, I, I wanted to be in good place. I wanted to leave at the right point in the cycle and I didn't want anyone to be like, hey, this guy is doing something um, that's not cool. Like I didn't want people like, you know, bad mouthing me. There's generally no point in burning bridges, especially with a, with well thought of folks in the field, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I haven't stayed in contact with Mark as much. Uh, I did after we um, uh, split and, you know, I've, I've, I've seen him for fair amount, just, you know, not as kind, but I've stayed a little bit more contact with Steve. Um, and yeah, I think these relationships are really helpful. And, you know, I actually referred some things to Mark at one point early on, you know, and when there was a conflict that I had, and I really did want to have a you know, I'm sure that, you know, we're all competitors and talk trash about each other, but overall, you know, not be seen. I'd seen people leave firms on really bad terms and I just didn't want that to be part of our story at all. Do, do you find yourself like pitching up against those two folks for the same client ever? And does that add any, uh, I don't know, adrenaline or wrinkle to the situation? Uh, yeah, actually, we actually pitch against them both a fair amount. Sometimes I'm always bumping into them and sometimes like it's been a while, but yeah, we do. Um, how do I feel about it? You know, pretty good. I mean, I, I, I know both those firms really well. So if you know that they're part of the mix, I know what, what ads they're going to show. I know how they're going to present themselves so I can calibrate my approach to them. They've beaten us and we've beaten them. So it's not like, you know, every time one result happens, so I'm not really worried about it. I think the hardest thing when you pitch is, you know, knowing who else is pitching and what they're going to bring to the table and how people are going to react. And, and I know really well how they're going to react. So what's nice if they do get it, you know, you go, well, how did that campaign go? You know, what do you, what do you think? A lot of times they tell you, oh, you're lucky you didn't get it or whatever, you know, or you have a little bit of extra insight because you've met the candidates in the team. A lot of times um, for IEs, people purposefully, if they have the candidate side, they have us do the IE side or vice versa. And it's really helpful actually, because uh, I do observe all these, you know, firewall things. I don't like call them up and be like, Hey, what are you guys planning on doing? But like, I have a good idea of like what they're going to do with the media buy, like what kind of they're going to do creative. That is very helpful. Putnam was doing Amy McGrath last cycle and I was doing ditch Mitch and a lot of times with house majority pack. So that is very helpful and people sort of ask us like, well, what, what are they, what are they thinking? And what do you think they'll do? And I'm not perfect, but I have a better idea. What are some newer firms that people I haven't worked with? I'm like, I don't know. I have no clue what they're going to do. And my intelligence is, is not as good. Did you work for Lori Lightfoot? Yes. 
Tell me about that race. So Lori Lightfoot, when we got involved in her campaign, she was, you know, ninth place in a field of nine. They first wanted us to do a viral video for them. And so we came up with this idea of like the steamroller. That she was like the steamroller going to run over the, you know, the Chicago machine uh, and change things. The team liked it. She didn't like it. Anyway, they, they eventually, you know, kind of went dormant with them and then a little bit before the election, they say, hey, we have some money. We want to do an ad. And so we came up with a, a good ad. I think that encapsulates what that race was all about. And, you know, she started at nine and then we started sensing some momentum with her. And um, as folks might know, she uh, came in first in the first round. And, and that was probably one of the most exciting things that I've been involved in. You know, she was an unknown. People didn't know her. For people who don't know, there was an incredible cast of characters that was running in this Chicago mayor's race. And Lori was a very interesting candidate to, to work with. And so that was a very exciting historic race to work on. We did some really good creative in the runoff and had a really his, uh, historic win there for her to be the first black woman openly LGBTQ uh, mayor of, of Chicago. So that was, it was a very interesting race, very satisfying, uh, a lot of adrenaline there. And it also happened at a time where my wife was pregnant and was about to give birth. So um, uh, I had to navigate going and shooting ads for her when my wife could have maybe given birth. And my wife did give birth uh, right, right before the election. So I wasn't out there for election night. So a lot of things were going on and, and we can unpack that race, but it was a very exciting experience. So how do you think about making an ad for a race like that? What Just give me some insight into how you think about it in the process. Well, you know, with her, she started off like a lot of candidates where she didn't have a lot of money. So you got to do a lot of things. And Chicago is very expensive. So you got to do a lot in, you know, 30 seconds, right? And digital is like 15. I start off very wide in my creative process and then narrow things down. And so I, I, you know, look at the poll, all this anecdotal stuff that we have, have long conversations with the candidate, everything I can get and just put it into like a large vat in my mind, you know, uh, and then start reducing everything um, into what is important, what we want to communicate. And then I start thinking about concepts. Um, it's very different from how Mark thinks. Mark does look a lot of stuff, but he, he latches onto an idea much quicker and then tries to shoehorn things into the idea. I like thinking conceptually with a conceptual ad. I usually look for like what I call a vehicle. Um, so the first Lori Lightfoot ad, it all takes place in this smoke-filled room, which symbolizes the politics of the past, Chicago machine politics. So that room is like the vehicle for, for the whole ad. So once I sort of figured out all the points that we wanted to hit and then, and then prioritized what we needed to do, and what I think could fit in there, then I looked for like, what was the stage for the ad? And then it came down to, you know, this smoke filled room. I thought about her name, Lightfoot. Uh, the ad basically starts off where you, you see this closed door where there's smoke coming out of it. You see in the room and there's cigars and all this sort of stuff. And then this, the lights come on and then there's Lori Lightfoot and the smoke is gone, it's brightly lit, and she's talking about how this is the politics of the past, and then she pivots to what she wants to do as mayor. So the way the idea in that case generated is, okay, well, she's got her name, it's light, let's bring out the light, I'm bringing the light, you know, um, where, where could she do that? Well, maybe she, in order to have, to see light, you need darkness. So that got me thinking, darkness, dark, dark room, smoke-filled room. And so I th thought about that. So then I kind of had a germ of an idea, and then put it together and then sort of figure out exactly what you want to say in the ad. Sorry if that's too long, but that, that's sort of my process is starting very wide, uh, going narrow on what you want to say, and then finding a, a concept or a vehicle to deliver all this information. The right vehicle or location allows you to not only deliver a message a core message, but it also allows you to deliver a lot of secondary messages, which you need to do in politics. Like everybody goes, oh, well, here's this ad. Like, you know, we want to say that she's the outsider, but oh, we also have to talk about schools and public safety, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, how do you put that all together? Well, 
the right vehicle will allow you to do that. We live in a pretty extraordinary time for politics. So polarized and white Christian right wing Trumpist authoritarianism versus progressive multiracial democracy here. And it's pretty stark. There's a just a substantial difference in who gets to govern for the future of the country and the world. How does that shape your practice? How much does that affect how you do normal politics or does it? As far as like making the choices that you have to make in talking to candidates, in making ads, in being a consultant, in choosing who you work for, does it structure it differently than it did before? Or is it pretty much the same game? Uh, yeah, I, I, there's been some changes. I mean, I think that there's a recognition now that, you know, it used to be this idea and there, and there were a lot more examples of, you know, the blue dog Democrat who could, you know, walk the fine line. And, and so people would kind of order a little bit more a la carte, you know? And so my advice to candidates now, you know, is, Look, they're going to hit you on this stuff anyway. There's not as much nuance for it. You know, you don't want to alienate your base. There's a lot, lot, lot less subtlety here. Just go where where your comfortable is and where the party is. That being said, I think that there still are some key things that people have to moderate themselves on. But yeah, a lot of this sort of wishful thinking about harmony and stuff like that is kind of out the window. The the people that we're running against are like getting to be more despicable. So it, it, it makes it easier to do contrast or negative. But, you know, it's not massively different. I mean, the world is always changing, though, right? This this development with Trump is not that long, you know, and it, it's kind of moderating now. And it's always interesting every cycle to see how these coalitions and how things shift. But at the end of the day, it's it's not massively different. But, you know, I the territory that where we're working, you know, I used to go to a lot of places like I would be in like the rural South, <laughs> you know, your terrain if with few exceptions is, is, you know, suburban and urban, less rural. You know, I did um, Billy Sutton's gubernatorial race in um, South Dakota in 2018, where we actually came very close to beating Christy Nome, great candidate, great guy. Um, but, you know, things like that are becoming less common. I see them. Uh, we work for Jared Golden, who represents the Trumpiest congressional district, the most the district that had the highest showing for Trump now held by a Democrat. So there's stuff like that you have up, to worry up about. Up in Maine, right? Up in Maine, Maine's second district. That's a, but you know we used to that would be kind of more of our bread and butter. I mean, you know, we we, we used to be in you know districts that were R16 all the time, and you'd have the right person, and you know it wasn't a big deal. That's becoming. Uh, less frequent now. So that's different. You know, it is more suburban and urban. Is a candidate like Golden a a model? I don't know him or his campaign, to be frank, but it, it, a lot of times someone who's holding a seat like that, you can learn a lot about what it takes to win the marginal seats around the country. Do you think that's true? Yes. I think that Jared is a fantastic politician and legislator. He reminds me a lot of Sherrod, actually. Um, he really does his homework. He talks to a lot of people. He's not really well known nationally because he purposefully uh, does not do national media. He really wants to focus on on main media there. Jared's a different kind of candidate. He's a Marine, did a, a combat tour in Iraq and a combat tour in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, he comes from you know, a small business family. He was, you know, a state legislator in Maine. He is a very eclectic um, political philosophy. You know, when it came to impeachment, you know, he voted for one article and not the other. <laughs> and somebody said that's the most Maine thing ever. You know, he really reads things closely. He listens a lot. We were like, oh, this guy's a veteran. He's been in Iraq and Afghanistan. Let's have him be G.I. Joe. And he's like, no, no, we can't do that. You know, got to talk about how I serve, but let's keep it, you know, let's, you know, I don't want to make myself sound like a hero or anything. We're like, oh, you're just being you're bashful or whatever. But, you know, we did a lot of focus groups actually up there. And people really liked 
how we presented him. We touched on him being a veteran, but a, a much different treatment than some of the other candidates do. Um, I'm not criticizing, let's say, Jason Crow. I think he's a fantastic politician. Um, he's done quite well in Colorado. Maybe things are different in Colorado, but you know, in some of his advertisements, you know, they talked about how he was, he was G.I. Joe there. That's something we, we avoid of Jared. Um, it's much more um, understated. But I think that how he presents himself and how he does constituent service, he works very closely with Susan Collins, you know, the state legislator who worked with a lot of Republicans on, on getting things done. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, if there's, I, I do think people should look at him. I mean, he's the, if you, if we do want to win in these tough districts, you know, you, you got to do your homework like him. I, I run into a lot of candidates and, you know, they don't spend the time working. This as someone as hard as he does. Is there something that he knows that the leadership of, I don't know, the progressive caucus doesn't know or of the the house of representatives or uh are, the, are there just different angles on the same thing well you know in some ways they're similar because i think that the progressive caucus people like really know their districts right they're really close to the activists and the they're just not in competitive districts right you know some of the more outspoken people who would criticize someone like golden and not many of them do. I think he probably has good relations. I don't know for sure, but you know, he, you know, I think he knows where people are coming from. But I, th I think they just don't understand, like, you know, how difficult these districts are, and also what the people in the districts want. I mean, Jared, at the end of the day, is a public servant. He knows that the people in his district voted for Trump. He doesn't praise Trump. He did vote on, you know twice <laughs> to impeach him, right? Not three times, not three articles, but two over the two impeachments. He has been very critical of him, but he's also not going to insult Trump because a lot of the people in his district voted for him and respect him. He's not going to defend him, but he's not going to poke that in people's eyes. Um, and I think a lot of people in the, the progressive caucus, you know, also just don't understand these kinds of voters. There's still a lot of manufacturing there. It, it is a very, a lot of agriculture. It's very blue collar. They have different kinds of uh, concerns than, than you would in an urban or a suburban district. So, you know, I think that it would be good for, you know, members of the progressive caucus that are interested to, you know, not publicly, but privately go and check out these districts and take a really close look and see, and not just talk to activists there. I mean, yeah, there's a ton of activists there that are very progressive. One of the big balancing act Jared has to do is balance, you know, what the pro progressive base in his district want versus what the average voter wants. Um, but, you know, go and check out and see what it takes to win a district like this. Politics is pretty complicated, pretty local, even in a partisan, polarized, nationalized sort of time, isn't it? Is there a question I haven't asked you that I should have? I don't know. You've, you're a pretty good interviewer. You know, Mark Putnam should. So you've talked to him. <laughs> he doesn't have to make the podcast. You've talked to him for several hours, but he just hasn't been on the podcast. That's sort of interesting. Well, uh, you know, in, in his defense, I'm not that great of a talker. I really have uh, enjoyed talking to you. And I, you know, I didn't know a lot of your, your stories and background before this. And uh, I'm glad that we have you on the team fighting the good fight. I guess if there's one thing, you know, I know that a lot of people that listen to your podcast, you know, are interested in starting their own companies and, you know, how to go about things. I mean, if there's anything more you wanted to ask me how to build your business or how to approach, uh, you know, working with clients and stuff like that, I'd be, if that's, you know, if that fits in, I'd be happy to do I, that. I, th I think it always fits in. What, what have you learned in, uh, in your years being out on your own and, and before about building a business in this space? Yeah. I mean, I think building a business in the space is really difficult. I think that marketing is important and you have to do marketing. If I did a spreadsheet and actually track this, probably most of that marketing money is like is wasted. It doesn't really do anything. So I think the best way to, to build your business and get new clients is to really do good work. And most of the time I get new stuff is like I get a random call from someone I haven't worked with in a while. And they said, Hey, I really liked, you know, working with you on this thing. You know, maybe they were the pollster or they were the mail consultant or they were the campaign manager or whatever. So they didn't necessarily bring me in to work for this other one. And they say, Hey, I have this client now. Um, I think you'd be a really good fit. Let me help you. And so 
that's what always surprises me is people shortchange the work and they really, I've, I've found people who are the best marketers a lot of times don't, are not the greatest creatives. So I would tell people not only just the creative you make, but also how you, you know, you're easy to get along with, you're responsive. Um, that really helps build your business more than anything else. And when you get an opportunity, do a really good job. Like what you asked me about Lori Lightfoot. Well, she was like, didn't have a lot of money in ninth place when we encounter her, but consciously was like, you never know, she might be able to do it. You know, let's, she seems like a cool lady and, you know, really do a good ad for her. Um, so I, I feel like the people that I talk to that sort of say, oh, this isn't a big thing. These people are annoying. I don't care if you do a crappy job. Like I've done enough for them. You never know those <laughs> I've, I, I, you know, sometimes I do cut corners and don't do the greatest work. And then those people win and then you're like, ah, I really don't want to show that work because it's not that great. <laughs> so like every client is an opportunity to do really great work. Boy, that's my experience across other fields of entrepreneurship is the quality of the product and the service around it ends up trumping over the long run snazzy sales or marketing or things like that. At least you hope it does. I, I, I've definitely found uh, that it matters a lot. Yeah. For sure. Well, I think that covers it, basically. Well, cool. Good to talk to you. That was Phil DeValise. Phil is at beacon-media.net. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with a Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.